so there's a bit to cover in this talk, uh, from World War I to AUKUS, Labor, Imperialism and the Politics of War. So forgive me if uh, I don't cover every, every detail of the last 100 plus years of those topics, but I want to start with uh, the Labor Party's conference, national conference that they held last weekend, which is a, a party conference. They bring together delegates and observers from all around the country to debate their um, ALP policy platform. And the biggest debate, and it was quite well reported in the media, was over the AUKUS pact, which, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, is a security pact between Australia, the UK and the US, uh, the centrepiece of which is a plan for Australia to acquire eight nuclear-powered submarines at a cost of $368 billion. That's already blown out and is expected, you know, very likely to blow out um, further to, you know, closer to half a trillion. AUKUS has been immediately controversial, both within the Labor Party and more broadly, and I think there's a few reasons for this. One is that the policy was inherited uh, almost directly from Scott Morrison, which you know disappointed a lot of people who might have expected Labor to break with the Liberals' sort of warmongering. I think another big reason is the obscene cost is simply too much to swallow when budget restraint is you know what we hear as the reason we can't spend more on renewable energy, on housing and social services. And the nuclear power aspect has drawn a lot of anger, particularly from unions with a long-standing opposition to nuclear weapons, power and waste. So as it stands, there's 50 Labor units, as they were reported, um, essentially branches, unions or councils that have opposed AUKUS from within the party. Uh, heavyweights former Prime Minister Paul Keating and New South Wales Premier Bob Carr also oppose it, uh, not on an anti-war basis, but um, essentially on a, on a pro-war basis that it's actually not an effective defence policy because they'll take so long to build and they're very limited in their scope of what they're actually used for, which is not to defend the Australian mainland, but to spy on, on China. Doug Cameron, a former New South Wales Senator, uh, is a co-convener of Labor Against War and uh, another member of Labor Against War, War is former Environment Minister Peter Garrett. So I guess the picture I'm painting is that the dissent that's coming from in Labor is quite significant and goes quite high up. Electrical Trades Union National Secretary Michael Wright and Felicity Wade from Labor Environment Network spoke against AUKUS at the conference and protests were held outside as well. As was always expected, the uh, policy AUKUS was voted up as part of the party platform with only about a quarter of formal delegates voting against, which were mostly based on, on militant union delegates. But there was a lot of heckling coming from, from observers as well. And I think it's fair to say the resistance isn't going anywhere. Actually, it's growing. Uh, the Port Kembla South Coast May Day earlier this year, which is Port Kembla's where at the moment they're talking about basing the submarines, was you know the most vibrant May Day rally in a long time. So I guess what I want to go over in this talk is this contradictory stance within the Labor Party, where you have dissent 
in its ranks, but a consistent imperialist agenda from its leaders. And I'm going to argue this is a long-standing feature of the Labor Party and that it's due to Labor's contradictory position of trying to be both a party of the working class and a party of the nation-state, which essentially represents ruling class interests. Anthony Albanese argued at the conference that AUKUS is essentially the price that the party has to pay for Labor to stay in power, since Labor must be seen as credible on defence in order to have any chance of retaining government. Defence Minister and Deputy PM Richard Miles gave a speech positioning Labor history as the true party of defence. And I'm going to quote this speech at length because I think it's very, very revealing. He said, Delegates, the true reading of our country's defence history is that in the most difficult moments, Australians look to Labor. On the eve of the First World War in 1913, it was the Fisher Labor government that established the Navy, perhaps the single biggest leap in our military capability. It was John Curtin who properly understood the threat to our country in World War II and who organised our national defences and made the decisions which gave Australia its independence. And it was Gough Whitlam, a former Air Force navigator and veteran of World War II, who unified our three services into a single defence force. He goes on to say, it is Labor, it has always been Labor, who is the true party of Australia's national defence. This is a hard choice, but it's a clear choice. And he says, imagine John Curtin, who was an opponent and made his name opposing conscription in the First World War, bringing a resolution for conscription to the sec for the Second World War to this very conference in 1943. Every difficult decision that this country has taken and that Labor has taken comes with internal opposition. Considered debate and difficult decisions is what we do. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I think the summary of Miles' message to the conference is you can fight us, you can oppose us, and by all means, that's a part of our great Labor tradition. But our real tradition is quashing your dissent and doing it anyway. So I'm going to go through some of the examples, sort of use his examples um, as an outline to go into a bit more depth. So starting with World War I, widely recognised historically as a bloodbath where millions of young men were sent into a meat grinder of pointless trench warfare, which I think is depicted very well in um, the new film version of All Quiet on the Western Front, if people have seen that which graphically shows young conscripts being sent into battle in dead soldiers' clothes, the blood being washed out in industrial-scale laundries. World War I was ended by mutinies of Russian and German soldiers who refused to fight and turned their guns on their own officers and, indeed, governments. In Russia, the 1917 revolution decisively ended the war uh, and was fought by workers, peasants and soldiers under the slogan, Peace, Bread and Land. Trotsky distributed anti-war leaflets to German soldiers at, trains, at a train station on his way to diplomatic talks, and he published secret plans by the Allies to divide up Europe between them. The Treaty of Versailles, which was the terms of peace imposed on Germany, humiliated and economically destroyed Germany after the war and played a large part in the subsequent rise of Nazism. So Richard Mull's championing of Labour PM's Andrew Fisher's 
role in this, who vowed to fight, I quote, for Britain to our last man and our last shilling, is nothing short of sickening. I note in his speech he didn't mention the role of William Billy Hughes, Fisher's deputy, who took over as Prime Minister when Fisher retired. Billy Hughes, incidentally, was also the leader of the Waterside Workers Federation. And he was expelled from both the union and from the Labor Party while he was Prime Minister for his commitment to conscription in the First World War. Conscription was fiercely opposed, especially as more and more horror stories from the front found their way back home. Uh, Billy Hughes broke ranks with Labor policy to run two referendums on conscription, both of which lost. But who was responsible for the anti-conscription campaign? Well, primarily unionists, communists, of course, um, and other Labor Party members. Conscription tore the Labor Party apart. New South Wales, Victoria and the Queensland branches issued an ultimatum to all of their MPs to oppose conscription or lose the right to stand as Labor candidates. And massive strikes in the mining town of Broken Hill saw anti-conscription union militants elected um, as Labor uh, MPs in 1917, replacing pro-conscription uh, candidates. Moving on to World War II, Richard Miles then boasts of the anti-conscription advocate John Curtin doubling back on his own position to introduce conscription for the Second World War, which I actually didn't uh, realise it came in toward the end of Second World War and was only, quote, uh, for the sort of immediate Pacific region. But it's these kinds of sellouts which are apparently a hallmark of bravery and realism for ALP leaders. According to one source, Curtin wept when radical Labor parliamentarian Eddie Ward charged Curtin with putting young men into the slaughterhouse, although 30 years ago you wouldn't have gone into it yourself. But nonetheless, Curtin pushed through his proposal at a special Labor conference in January 1943, much like the Labor conference last weekend. World War II obviously has more of a reputation as being the good war against Nazism. But Nazi Germany was already defeated and Japan was weeks away from surrender when the US dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, largely to showcase their power actually to the Soviet Union, which they were allied with, but who they were um, terrified of you know, emerging strongly from, from the war. And particularly they were worried about Russia's growing uh, ability to influence the, the near Pacific. And I think this is primarily what shaped Australia's post-World War II imperial policy, the, uh, the threat or the perceived threat of communism taking over the Pacific. And as a side note, Solidarity members don't believe the Soviet Union um, at this stage was a communist uh, country. That's for, for another talk. But certainly uh, there was intense imperial competition um, between the Eastern Bloc and the West in the Cold War. So communism was, was the boogeyman of this time. Uh, in fact, I think Australia's foreign policy from the very outset has uh, been shaped by its role in the Pacific as a you know, white European outpost in Asia and all the colonial anxiety that goes along with that. In fact, as early as 1859, this is well before the Labor Party existed, but 
uh, the New South Wales Legislative Assembly resolved that Fiji should become a British possession. When the white Australia policy was introduced, that was embraced by the Labor Party. And during the First World War, Australia's rulers took the opportunity to seize German colonies, including New Guinea, Samoa and Nauru. During World War II, it was actually Labor's formal policy that Indonesia um, should be returned to the Dutch after Japan occupied. And it was only the growing independence movement, both within Indonesia, but also amongst unionists in Australia, uh, famously, particularly the waterside workers who refused to load Dutch ships that shifted Chifley's policy to a pro-independent stance for Indonesia. And after World War II, as I said, anti-communist fever took hold. And I think there's a lot <laughs> that happened, but as the most famous sort of example, I'm gonna hone in on the Vietnam War. Uh, while Australia is sometimes characterised as a, you know, a lapdog, a puppet, or even a victim of US imperialism, there's substantial evidence that actually Menzies cajoled the US into Vietnam, pushing the US hard that ground troops were needed and not waiting for a formal request from the South Vietnamese government before committing Australian troops. And they developed the domino theory to help create this sense that, well, if Vietnam falls, who'll be next? It'll come further down towards Australia because the reality was nobody really thought communist Vietnam was any kind of direct threat to Australia's shores. Australia was desperate for the US to put its stamp on the region and uh, at the end of World War II, John Curtin again actually sort of formally shifted Australia's... Um, I mean, we were still allied with Britain, obviously, but, you know, looked to the US as the primary kind of backer of Australia's um, interests on the world stage. Throughout all of this, the Labor Party was in opposition, and this is Vietnam, going back to Vietnam. The Labor Party was in opposition and, and sitting on the fence, essentially. In 1964, Labor supported sending Australian military instructors to Vietnam and a year later supported US bombing of the North. However, the introduction of conscription caused a problem because of Labor's now long entrenched opposition to conscription. And so under Arthur Caldwell, the party policy became uh, increasingly anti-war, but this was strongly opposed by his deputy Gough Whitlam, who in fact on the eve of the 1966 elections undermined his own leader and Labor's chances at the election by publicly disagreeing that, uh, you know, with, with a policy of troop withdrawal and even sort of suggested that perhaps more troops were needed. Labor was soundly defeated at the election and Whitlam seized the opportunity to take over as leader and watered down the party's position on the war. So it seems that Richard Miles' speech that I quoted earlier at the conference, was intent on restoring Whitlam's rightful legacy as a right-wing hawk. Of course, historically in the popular imagination, Whitlam is understood as ending the Vietnam War, and I think this is where you know, a lot of the confusion comes from, because he did, in fact, withdraw the remaining Australian troops in 1972. Um, the vast majority had already come home by that stage. But the reality was at this point, the US had already been defeated in Vietnam through a courageous 
guerrilla warfare led by the Viet Cong, combined with a mass anti-war movement at home and sabotage by the troops on the front. And I'd highly recommend the documentary Sir, No Sir, if people want more of an in-depth um, look at, at how that actually played out amongst American soldiers in Vietnam. So Labor's anti-war record, even on Vietnam, is far you know, more checkered than I think the history books remember. But once again, it was ordinary working people, unions, and many, many Labor Party members who played a central role in the resistance to the Vietnam War in Australia, which has cemented it in popular memory forever as a bad war. Uh, one of our own members, uh, Phil Griffiths, gave you know, a great sort of testimonial about being part of some of this anti-war um, work. And he describes how one of the mass moratoriums in Melbourne was built. It was, um, they started this moratorium campaign, which was essentially, you know, this, under the slogan, stop work to stop the war. So there were mass weekday rallies where people would go on strike to go on the march, and, and they were biggest in Melbourne. There were 27 rebel unions who split from the Victoria Trades Hall Council they appointed a full-time organiser to set up workplace meetings to build support, and they paid for an ad in Melbourne Sun newspaper to encourage unionists to stop work on the day to attend. And in fact, Jim Cairns, who was the deputy leader of the Federal Labor Party, turned up, handed out leaflets, and got arrested. Much earlier in the war, in 1966, when it was actually still very you know, a tiny minority opposing the war. Uh, seafarers refused to work on the Bunaroo, which the government had chartered to carry military supplies to Vietnam. And they sort of launched a campaign to call it the peace ship and saying they would only um, take, you know, um, sort of non-military uh, supplies to the troops. Um, just a brief word, I guess, on sort of labour policy in in the Middle East. I think on a lesser scale, a lot of what I said about Vietnam is also true of the Iraq War, which also had, you know, huge opposition, some of the biggest marches against in the world. It didn't have that same quality of, of, of strikes and stop work rallies to back it up. Um, but certainly it was, you know, branded um, as, a bad, as a bad war. Uh, and Kevin Rudd's um, Australia's Prime Minister did end Australia's involvement in Iraq. But, you know, he had no qualms about Afghanistan and we're still seeing the full suite of war crimes committed by Australian troops under the name of a so-called humanitarian intervention still coming to light um, most recently thanks to the war criminal Ben Robert Smith. Um, earlier in the 90s, Bob Hawke, who was uh, leader of the trade union council, went on to become prime minister, was an enthusiast for the first Gulf War in Iraq and readily sent a dispatch of troops. And of course, you know, Labor's general policy stance on Palestine remains a crying shame. So with all that in mind, um, I just want to go a little bit more into the sort of theoretical position about how we can understand all of, you know, this within the Labor Party. Because I think some socialists or leftists will denounce the Labor Party and everyone in it wholesale as a bourgeois sellout party that should only ever be shamed and not engaged. Whilst on the other hand, we all know 
uh, leftists, particularly, you know, say young Labor left members, particularly union members and officials who will argue that the ALP is the only serious avenue for change and so we should fight them from the inside. And I think solidarity rejects both of these stances. Tony Cliff said that you can't push a wheelbarrow by jumping inside it. But push it from the outside, we can and we want to do. The ALP is a capitalist workers' party. That was actually Lenin's uh, characterization. It's a workers' party because the membership and the voting base of Labor is overwhelmingly working class people. And obviously that's not as true today as it used to be in terms of the sheer scale, but it is still the case. And it is still retains strong historic connections to the union movement, which in fact, it was the union bureaucracy that set up the Labor Party in the 1890s to be the political wing of the trade union movement. So that's the workers' part of the workers' capitalist party, but the capitalist part is that Labor seeks to govern and run the system. And in order to win elections, Labor must make itself electable, uh, which means being palatable not only to voters, but to the media and the powerful interests that it needs on side to gain power and stay in power. And so in other words, it seeks to represent all classes under the nation state, which when it comes to the crunch, the most powerful interests are put first. And I think in representing the nation state, this also means that Labor pushes Australia's so-called national interest um, on the world stage. But what are these national interests? Well, nation states compete with each other for resources, for control of trade routes, for markets. And to do all this effectively, they project military power globally to ensure economic supremacy. Some countries like the US are able to do this on a global scale and other smaller sub-imperialist powers such as Australia do this on a regional scale and seek to get the assistance of, of global powers. Australia has long had economic interests in the Pacific dating back to you know the shameful blackbirding slave trade, um, you know controlling resources, um, you know, uh, valuable resources and mining in, in Papua New Guinea um, and, you know, having a, uh, a sympathetic or seeking to have a, a government in Indonesia sympathetic to Australia's interests because of Indonesia's uh, sort of strategic positioning in terms of vital trade routes. And actually Paul Keating, um, former Prime Minister, Labor Prime Minister, supported the Suharto dictatorship in Indonesia due to what he said was the stability and prosperity which his government has brought to the sprawling archipelago to our north. So all this is to say that there is a irreconcilable contradiction at the heart of the Labor Party, which seeks to be the party both of the working class <coughs> and of the nation state, which encompasses the ruling class. And these contradictions often break open and create a crisis inside the Labor Party. And as socialists, it is essential that we try to foster that conflict, work in a united front with reformist workers and dissidents within the Labor Party to gain their trust, to build a strong movement, a much, much stronger movement than what we would be able to do on our own or even with other parts of the far left, as I hope my 
sort of history of the Vietnam War, anti-Vietnam War movement sort of illustrated, and ultimately actually to win leadership and break people away from reformist parties like Labor to a revolutionary leadership that consistently and militantly opposes nationalism and understands that national divisions divide workers across the globe. Um, Workers have no national interest, they only have class interests. I think AUKUS is proving to be a critical crossroads for us to put that theory into action. And hopefully some people in this room who've been involved in the anti-AUKUS campaigns can talk more about how we've gone about doing that in practice. Thanks. Thanks.